Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, So whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well... What better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today, we're answering your listener questions. That is right, buddy. We've got several listener questions to get to during this episode, including a listener who's wondering if it's worth moving banks for an additional 1%. Uh, Where do you draw the line, Joel? That's well, a good uh, question. I'll, I'll ask, <laughs> ask you that here later on. Another listener is wondering how much she should spend on a car. Uh, we've got some great thoughts there, as well as another listener. He is wondering if uh, him and his wife, if they should convert their primary residence into an investment property. Essentially, we're talking about house hacking. Yeah. Which we love, but it may not be the best fit for this listener. We'll get to we'll explain a little more uh, later on. Not necessarily house hacking. That's usually renting out a portion of the house you live in or whatever. Yeah, that's but true. But it's becoming a landlord by taking the asset that you already own. Like, it's should a, you sell it or should you? It's a hackish it? way to get into investment yeah. properties. Which is, I mean, the thing that we have told people all along. It's like if you buy that starter home, well, if you save up enough for the down payment on the next one, keep the starter home. That can. Uh, that can be the best way to get into landlording, real estate investing for a whole lot of people. But this one comes with some some quirks attached. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a bit. But Matt, let's uh, real quick. I want to mention just a savings tip that I came across. And late on me. Okay, so my which wife, is your savings tip that you chose not to buy anything at all. <laughs> that is a great. That is a great one. But so my wife's been deprivation is uh, the uh, yeah, is the new thing. Just don't enjoy anything is yeah. one way to save money. That's uh-huh. for sure. Uh, but <laughs> no, that it was not that. My wife has been making into making some. Cocktails with mezcal in them recently, nice. which I'm not gonna lie, one yeah. of my one of my favorite liquors, right? Uh, mezcal is very nice, one of the best spirits. So, uh, but but one of the things that goes in this concoction that she's been making is agave syrup. Mm-hmm. Or agave nectar, actually. Okay. So these are two different things, agave nectar and agave syrup. Oh, are they? Yeah. I, I did not know that. So this is interesting. What's the difference? Agave nectar is like thinner, and agave syrup is 
like a little bit thicker. A little bit thicker, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so at the when you actually go to the place where you buy the mezcal to the spirits shop or whatever, they they sell the agave nectar, which just blends into the cocktail much more easily. But then we were at Costco and we saw that they sell a, like a two pack of agave syrup, and we're like, whoa, this is like eight times cheaper <laughs> than the agave nectar. The way you'd buy it, like total wine? Yeah, like okay. so much cheaper. It's not even funny. So we're like, well, let's give this a shot. Interestingly enough, you actually have to like mix it in better because it is thicker. It's so thick. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, ultimately it does blend in. and Very you, nice. And so you just save a ton of money with not much extra hassle. By not buying packaged water, which yeah, is, right. uh, I guess, well, that's the thing too with, uh, what is it, just regular simple syrup that you can buy. They've got the Stirrings company and they make yes. the, uh, the the simple syrup. And all it, I mean, literally you're buying sugar mixed with water. It's and so sugar water. <laughs> you can make your own 50-50 so make... blend at home, heat it up over uh, with in a little saucepan well that got me thinking though could you have like another bottle and dump the syrup into that and mix it with a little bit of water to kind of cut it a little bit probably that way you you don't have to like pre-dilute it yeah for sure instead of standing there and stir it a bunch and when you think about that 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 the syrup is more concentrated if you do dilute it like that it's probably like 15 times cheaper (laughs) it's crazy how much less expensive it is so this was like a little hack we found and like at first the syrup settled to the bottom we're like oh that's not that's not good that's not gonna work it's like super sweet but then you just mix it. She gets that little. Uh, does Emily still have her little coffee frother thing with a little spinny spring? Oh yeah, she does. Yeah, I think so. You, you could drop that down yeah. there and just have that thing go to town. On that's it. a good point. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard though with the colder drinks because sugar does not want to mix or blend with a colder drink. That's true. But maybe if you if you got the power of electricity on your side, buddy, you could. Uh, be well on your way to your mezcal margarita. We're just it's the forearm strength. Mezcal margarita land. That's all it takes. Is that what so. you're making with the uh, it mezcal? Basi- well, mezcal margaritas, or there's this one with like, and I should I could post the recipe. It's pretty <laughs> chill on uh, on our website, but it's I think it's basically mezcal, aperol, some of this agave oh. nectar or syrup, and then there was one other ingredient. What was the other one? Like a uh, seltzer, like a spritz. Was oh, it like she a, Emily likes to put yeah, she likes like to aperol, put like lime mezcal seltzer. spritz. Or oh, something? and it's just actually squeezed up lime juice too. So nice. that's that's the basics of it. Y'all experiment at home. Enjoy. <laughs> Uh, but but make it cost less by getting your agave syrup at Costco instead of buying it at the spirit store. It's amazing. It, it, like you said, every time I walk by that shelf of simple syrup, I'm always amazed. It's like infused with spearmint or something like that. No, You're like, no. you can all, do all that. You, all you need is sugar for practically nothing <laughs> at your house. Like, do not buy the prepackaged yeah, stuff. Yeah, and you can and heat it up slowly too. That way, you don't brown the sugar. Because if you do it too fast, you'll kind of burn it. Which I think some people like. Maybe it gives it like a toasted kind okay. of flavor. But you want to heat it up slow so you get that nice clear. Simple syrup, if that's what you're going for. And we are not mixologists. We are not. Life, I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there that are like, everything you guys have said is wrong, but, <laughs> but it has worked. But the price savings at, at Costco, for us. which is the only thing that we really care that we know about, <laughs> is, is right. So That's right. Uh, all right, let's introduce something we do know about, which is beer. We are enjoying another other half beer. This one's called Green City. It's a double dry hopped hazy IPA. And thanks again to Jason for, this is a part of the... The care package he yeah. sent our way. So looking forward to enjoying this one, and we will share our thoughts. I feel very cared for. The episode. Very cared for when Jason sends beer yeah. away. So thank you, Jason. One hundred percent. Has he? Did we send him some socks? Yes, we did. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad we did. We I had to. I can't remember if we did. And by the way, if you want a pair of How to Money socks, sign up for the How to Money newsletter. Refer a few of your friends. That's Boom. That's how you get How to Money. We actually socks just put in a, a new order, so we've got a brand new box full of a bunch of How to Money socks. You too can be rocking a pair of those the, beautiful. Sea green, yeah. How to money socks? We don't want to keep them. We've already got a pair, so we need to give you a pair. I've got like three pairs at home. What? Yeah, yeah. All right, I only got one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got one from like the original, and then I was gonna give them away or something. 
Oh, you know what I need to do? I need them's Kate's. But then I guess they they find their way back into my drawer. I I guess I just need to refer more of my friends (laughs) to the (laughs) newsletter. All right, let's uh, let's get on to the subject at hand. We're taking listener questions, and if you have a money question you want us to tackle in a future episode, we'd love to hear it. Just go to howmoney.com/slash/ask for simple instructions. But basically, to cut out the middleman, you can just record your question on the voice memo app of your phone. Stay your name, where you're calling from. Send it to us via email. We'll get you on an upcoming episode. But Matt, this first question is about the fact that. That Mint, the uh, favorite budging app of so many people for so long, is going away. Hey, y'all. It's Grace in Alabama. I have used the website Mint for many years to do my budgeting, savings goals, and just track my spending. You may have heard Intuit announced that they are discontinuing the service in 2024. So I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for another budgeting tool that might be a good replacement for Mint for me. I am not at all looking forward to migrating all of my years of data over to something else, but it might be a good chance to revisit some budgets I've had on autopilot for a while. Thank you, and thanks for what you do. Grace, you are not alone in being bummed about Mint shutting down. A lot of folks have been with them since the beginning because they were one of the they're one of the OGs. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, they had a great service they, there. They're the OG, I think. Yeah, millions of folks out there are trying to figure out what to do next. I've had I've had friends, Matt, texting me saying like. What's going on? Where do I go? Like mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of consternation because this has been a part of people's financial rhythms for a heck of a long time. Now. Yeah, but that being said, Grace, I do like the fact that she was looking at the bright side of things because she mentioned how this gives her an opportunity to revisit her budget, which yeah. is so true because we often do put things on autopilot, which is good on a lot of levels, but then we fail to revisit those budget categories, which means we might be consistently overspending if we're not updating the allocated amounts. Now, especially in an era of higher inflation. Yeah. But we also might not have revisited our goals that directly impact where we decide to stick money each and every single month. So you never want your budgeting app to get blown to total smithereens, but there actually might be a silver lining. We might have yeah. some good news for you, Grace. Well, and one of the other, I think, silver linings is if you if you care about this, and I think many people do, the fact that your data was being tracked and sold with Mint. And if you go to, let's say, one of these paid services, you might be able to avoid that in the future. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I was willing to for that trade-off, especially since I've been with Mint so long, but it is, I think, a, a silver lining, a bright spot. And, and Intuit is trying to convince folks, by the way, that they're not really shutting Mint down. They, they're they kind of uh, using language, and I think the CEO responded and said something along the lines of, well, we'll actually keep Mint up longer than we originally said. We realized that this was a quick timeline for people, and so they haven't really said well, how much longer or anything like that. So it's probably still best to, to look towards the next step. But they, they've also said that they're just pivoting Mint users to a different app, which is Credit Karma. And in all honesty, I'm a fan of Credit Karma. I use it myself, got it on my phone. But is this combined super app of Credit Karma with the addition of some of those Mint features, is that going to be sufficient enough for most budgeting aficionados? The answer is it's, it's hard to say, right? I think the the thing that's going to be lacking in particular that users are going to feel most is the lack of budgeting tools that Mint currently offers, right? You can still track your net worth. You can still see a lot of your transactions all in one place. But if you kind of want that nitty gritty budgeting feel, you're going to have to go elsewhere and you're going to have to start paying too in all likelihood as well. Intuit wants folks to go to Credit Karma and just kind of forget that Mint ever existed, but that might not be the best move for most people. Yeah, so the only sort of reputable free alternative that we know about is Empower, uh, but it's also better at net worth than actual budgeting. That's basically what they're 
it originally started out as a way for you to track your net worth, to yeah. track your investments, to keep up with that over time, to see what your, your net worth was, they got as some opposed of those, to the nitty gritty month to month kind of spending. They got some helpful tools and calculators over there as well, but you're right. Yeah. The net worth tracking is their biggest claim to fame. Exactly. Well, so Empower, formerly known as personal capital, because the whole idea was, was for you to, how, how much are you actually worth yeah. <laughs> from a financial standpoint? But if you're looking for more robust budgeting software, you're likely going to need to pay, like Joel said, YNAB. So you need a budget. YNAB, Monarch, and Copilot are a few of our favorites. Copilot, by the way, only is currently being offered for iOS. So all the Windows, Android users out there, no options there for you. Uh, but they all have different pros and different cons. And so the best way we felt to address this, we've actually got an article detailing those on our site that we'll make sure to link to. But personally, what I like using is going the old school manual manual method and using Excel. And one of the benefits there is that uh, you can pretty much count on the fact that they're never Microsoft is never going to get rid of Excel. Yeah. It's pretty much guaranteed that it will always be backwards compatible. I can go back to budgets that I've had from over a decade ago and see exactly what it was that I was spending money do, on. Do you know what it costs uh, for Excel for a year? Something like seven bucks a month if you are looking at, I think, the entire Microsoft suite month to month uh, for that subscription. But I guess what I, wanted, what I wanted to highlight, though, with that is the fact that a lot of folks will push back against the fact that you have to manually enter all your expenses and how much you make for, in our case, our income fluctuates significantly. But that's the whole point, in, in my opinion. The fact that I am tied to these expenses, uh, I feel them as opposed to like we're talking about when things are on auto pay or auto bill, you don't feel those charges as much. And it helps me to revisit whether or not some of those expenses move the needle for me and for Kate for us to kind of have a quick discussion at the end of the month. Typically, it, like it literally, you know, it takes like if I do it every single week, it takes about 15 minutes, like every single week. Otherwise, I spend one hour at the end of the month. Yeah. But it's a good way for me to be in touch with my budget, with our expenses for that month. So for you, it's not necessarily a way to save money because something like you're, YNAB. Because you're spending exactly. Similar. Yeah. YNAB is going to make it easier. But then in the same vein, the manual aspect of it for you is actually a win. Whereas for probably a lot of people, they would say that's a loss. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the th fact is. I think it's called Money in Excel. So there's a feature that is built into Excel that allows you via um, Plaid or some of those different interchanges uh -huh. that connect your accounts to software. It will automatically update it for you, but the features are pretty limited with Excel or Money in Excel. But there's this other budgeting software, Tiller. Pretty sure we've talked about it on yeah. the show before, but Tiller is awesome. It costs money, but they have a ton of different features and they have such a great community of folks who are essentially create like writing software and creating tools for the tiller community specifically when it comes to uh, bringing importing your data from mint i'm pretty sure that was a tool that was created by one of their users which is really cool it's really cool to see folks yeah. coming together and nerding out uh, over their budgets <laughs> as opposed to it being provided by a giant massive company like microsoft yeah. no i think what, what you're getting at here is it's kind of different strokes for different folks because all of these 100%. budgeting apps are made differently and so if you're into kind of snazzy ai infused sort of money technology copilot is cool for like the apple users out there or if you're into more spreadsheety stuff but you want it to be like excel but on steroids then tiller is is a great way to go or if let's say matt you mentioned monarch well the guy who basically helped to to start mint he launched monarch money and so that's a great place to turn if nice. you're like, I really want things to stay more the same, then I think that's um, that's 
probably a good place to go. And by the way, you don't necessarily have to start over from scratch. You can um, download a lot of your information from Mint before Mint goes mm-hmm. away. I'd recommend doing that ASAP, sooner rather than later. And then importing all those transactions into the budgeting software that you're moving to. Check to see if there's compatibility, if they're willing to do that. But for instance, Monarch has made it really, really easy to kind of help you make that transition. Well, they all basically see this as a massive opportunity for 100%. them to get all of the millions of people who have been very happy with Mint over the years yeah. and who are no longer being served. Any budgeting app, uh, ru- somebody who runs a budgeting app, their eyes got as wide as saucers <laughs> when they saw that, <laughs> totally. this announcement and they were like, okay, we're going to be able to hopefully onboard a bunch of people. And this, like you said, Matt, like I think this could be good for a lot of people and maybe you're going to get a ro- more robust software. It's like the kick in the pants that has got you to finally move yeah. and perhaps to find something that's going to work a little bit, little bit better for you. Exactly. I will say if you found that maybe you weren't doing a whole lot of detailed budgeting, like you can actually give Credit Karma a shot. Uh, you know, So they are moving Mint users over in phases. So you can expect to hear directly from Mint from Credit Karma very soon if you haven't already. But for everyone else out there looking to manually download that data, uh, you want to have that on hand. Literally go to your account, select data privacy, then select download, and then select Mint, and you're going to have all that information on, on hand, wherever it is that you end up, because you yeah. may not even know where it is that you end up for several more months, but to be able to have that have that store of information is going to be really valuable. Yeah, and you can basically download it in, what, a CSV file? I don't even know what that stands for, yeah. but that's that's the file type. Comma something values? Yeah, so literally, know. that stands for something. Yeah. No, <laughs> Not a tech nerd. <laughs> don't know what that means, but that's the type uh, of yeah, file you're going to be downloading. I feel like I've let you, let you down. If, like, dot .csv is something I should personally know. This is the uh, role but... you play on the show, Matt. <laughs> Everyone knows this. But I don't. You're the tech nerd. I, I I don't follow that stuff. And so you've personally let me down today, but it's okay. We'll move through this. Uh, and I guess if, if you were to personally hold my feet to the fire, I would probably say YNAB. We've just, there's so many how, how to money users that have benefited so much from YNAB. I love kind of the intentionality behind the YNAB, YNAB software. Mm-hmm. But each of these, like we said, each of these budgeting softwares is unique. For instance, on Copilot, I love their recurring expense feature. It's one of the best things they've got, got going on. They have a rollovers feature that's helpful too. And it has these like learning capabilities that kind of remind me of the Nest thermostat, Matt. It's like, oh, kind of trying to figure out, oh, right. well, how do you work with money? And we want to adapt to the way that you save, spend, and think about money. I just wouldn't be mad about paying for the budgeting app either. I think it's it's not the worst thing in the world to have skin in the game. You're more likely to actually use it and get benefit from it. And I think a lot of frugal people would say, man, I, I want to avoid the fee. I don't want to pay a dime for it. But I think think for like the right app that kind of becomes maybe the grand central station of your finances where you're, everything's coming into one place and you're able to look at it and see how, how good of a job you're doing, or then like this could save you quite a bit more than it actually costs. Yep. And by the way, I looked it up. Comma, separated values. Okay. Not comma, something values. Well, close enough. <laughs> separate. Uh, yeah, no, I totally agree with what you're saying as far as paying for that software. Because like we were talking about with Mint, if you're receiving something for free, you aren't receiving something for free. Your, product. your data is being harvested. And when it comes to something that is so core to our personal security and our, our finances, man, I would be more than willing to pay for something that you know you're not going to be uh, receiving ads and spam based on some of the expenses that are showing up within your within your monthly statements. Yeah, and one of the downsides of Credit Karma, I, I like Credit Karma a lot, and we recommend it here on the show in so many ways, but they're, they're always telling you, hey, this financial product might be perfect for you based on what we know about you, which mm-hmm. is a lot. And so you yep. might feel a little uncomfortable getting served some of those ads, but it's also kind of 
yeah, there's there's no better free tool out there to kind of help you manage and stay on top of what's going on with your credit. So there is a trade off. It's just important to know what that is. That's right, man. Uh, all right, we've got more listener questions to get to, including we're going to hear from a listener who has experienced the joy and the freedom of not necessarily being tied down to a singular employer, but there's a downside to that as well. How do you save for retirement? We'll get to that plus others right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, Matt, we're just getting started on this Listener Question Monday. We got many more Listener Questions to get to. Yeah, we do. A lot of personal finance advice that we, we got to d- divulge. But this next one comes from a listener who is moving across the country and wants to know if he should keep the house he's got. Howdy, Mountain Joel. This is Joshua from Dallas, Texas. Uh, y'all's guidance over the years has been so helpful, and I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate y'all. Um, but I also have a, a question uh, regarding renting out a property. Uh, So my wife and I bought a house in Dallas a couple of years ago, um, and we liked the the house, we loved the neighborhood, but uh, I was just offered a a new job, uh, and it's a job that I've been trying to get for a really long time, so I'm really excited about it, and I accepted the offer. 
the thing is, it's going to require us to, to move to New York. So uh, that kind of left us wondering what to do with the house uh, that we own, we've only owned for a couple of years. So we're really leaning towards renting it out, but we're complete novices when it comes to renting out a property, uh, managing a property, and all that stuff. So I just wanted to get your general advice uh, on that since you guys have owned a few properties yourselves. Um, do we hire a property manager? How do we calculate the rent? Uh, just stuff like that. So um, since this job is going to require us to relocate every two to three years, I think hiring a property property manager is going to be the best route for us, but we're not sure. So yeah, any and all advice would be much appreciated. Thanks, y'all. All right, so Joshua is going from Texas to... New York. It makes me think of the uh, the salsa. What was that salsa commercial from the uh, like the eighties? <laughs> oh, yeah. New York City. Yeah, what, well, yeah, what, what was that? Uh, Paste picante sauce. Paste picante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that I was guess, a classic commercial. So freaking good, and that's totally what what Josh is doing. Although he didn't, I guess he didn't. Net, did he say that he was going to be moving to New York City or to New York? Either way, I know the the cost of living is going to be, I'm sure, significantly more yeah. than where he is currently. And guess what? They don't have brisket quite as good up there either. <laughs> I, can, well, I guarantee they don't. But regardless, I'm guessing you might want to make sure that you are planning a little more accordingly depending on the cost of living specifically given the specific locations where you might end up. Because I guess if he's like, we've got a friend up in Rochester and it's yeah. not that expensive, I guess, to live up there. In, no, there are definitely in parts, parts of, of New York that aren't... The more rural areas yeah. are, I'm sure, going to be Not fine. terribly expensive, but if you're moving into the city... The yes, actual city. It's going to be shocking. Yeah. Like, uh, on every single level. At least from everything we hear from friends who live in New York City who've moved there. Uh, Matt, even when Emily and I went there just for a weekend trip, we were like... Oh my gosh! Like everything is so much more expensive here. The really? the hotels are crazy expensive. Getting a beer out is super expensive. But but like there's so, there's so much to to talk about here when it comes to Joshua's question. And I think before we kind of say, hey, here's exactly how you do it. Let's maybe throw up the yellow flag, a little caution flag to say, should you be doing it? Is this the right move for you to do? Like should you be going down this direction to begin with? And so what should you do with the house? Well, I. I love that you're up for running it out. I love that you're thinking mm -hmm. about going in this direction. I love that you want to turn this primary home into a rental property. It might be the right move. But but before I get, like, we give you like the slap on the back, the how to money seal approval of approval and tell you to go for it, which again, might be the right move. We just want to offer like a devil's advocate at take first or just say, hey, here's a few questions you need to ask yourself before you slam dunk say this is the right decision. And first things first, I mean, while the housing market has stalled out quite a bit, it feels like there's not a whole lot of movement happening prices are still near all-time highs and so if you are one of those few listings out there you're going to stand out and for the few people who are still looking hey you might be one of the only attractive homes in the vicinity that is true so it's not like home prices in most places across the country have fallen off a cliff if you're it's it still might be a good time to sell is what i'm trying to say and so like if you if you opt to rent that home out for a few years and then sell it prices might not be as good. They might be better, but they might not be as good. So that's important to mention. And and let's say you opt to hold on to it for a few years, three, four, five years, and then uh, you, you opt to sell at that point, you could be faced with a much bigger tax bill than if you were to sell the home now, which would uh, all those gains would come to you tax-free. So it's important to mention the tax implications of turning this into a rental and then maybe changing your mind a few years down the road. Also, does your specific home, is it a good rental? Run the numbers, right? If you love the house, yeah. you got a super low mortgage rate, and you think the location where you where your home is has a lot of room to run. You say this is a neighborhood that's on the come up, and maybe you stand to make a decent chunk each month, even after those expenses. It could be a solid choice, but you want to run through all those filters first before you just automatically say this is a great investment choice. Maybe 
maybe the better choice is to sell it and invest those the, that money in a different way instead. Exactly. Yeah, it depends if he has a plan for the proceeds of that home sale. But again, so much nuance is involved when it comes to making this choice. Honestly, like it would just be more of a slam dunk if you were just moving down the street and if you were self-managing. But when you're moving across the country, things change. First of all, you're a first-time landlord, and so that makes things a little trickier. But not only that, you're a long-distance first-time yep. landlord, which make, complicates things even more. But then fact is, too, you are moving for your job, which tells me that you're pretty dedicated to your job, which tells me maybe it's a fairly highly demanding job. So on top of that, you've got a job where a lot of your time during the day is going to be occupied by your professional career, which is great. I think it's awesome for you to focus on that. Not everybody has the kind of job or the kind of career that allows them to self-manage some, some rentals on the side. But that, coupled with the fact that you're a first-time landlord, coupled with the fact that uh, you are doing this from afar, makes it much more difficult to actually do yourself. And that's when uh, looking towards management, we certainly think that that, for you, makes a whole lot more sense, yeah. even though it's going to cost you more money. And Joshua mentioned he's not just moving to New York, but then he might be moving other places two years, yet, every yet two again. years after that, right? So exactly. it could just be uh, adding a, a lot of hassle to an already intense lifestyle it's just important to ask yourself those questions. Well, are you going to have the time to even interview property managers and find a good one? And, and I don't want to oversell the nature of your job that you're working 100 hours a week or something like that. That could be that could be really far from the truth. But I think it's just important to think through the potential headaches before you actually go all the way down this path and say, boom, I've really wanted to own rental real estate. I feel like I see that, Matt, with I, talking to somebody recently, and they bought their first investment property. And I was proud of them. Hey, congratulations, way to go. But I could also tell they just so badly wanted to have an investment property that it didn't seem like the purchase was the best, right? Mm. And so I think that that's a pit. A, a trap that some people fall into sometimes is like numbers didn't necessarily make all the sense yeah it's like i want to be a real estate yeah. investor and then you make a decision that's not it's not the right one uh, just because you so badly want to have that attached to your you name. You might be more married to the idea of being a real estate yeah. investor as opposed to how much is this actually making you money? And that's why we're talking about what to do with the proceeds because like he didn't say anything about whether or not his retirement accounts are fully maxed mm -hmm. out, right? But if we had that information, I think we could provide a little more, at least some more thoughts on what, what to do with that money. Because let's say, for instance, he hadn't maxed out, I think it's him and his partner or him and his wife. Let's say they haven't contributed to this year's Roth IRA. That's thirteen thousand dollars right there, and let's say, boom, it's about to be January. That's, that's another right. fourteen. We're looking at twenty-seven thousand dollars. That's close to thirty grand in the blink of an eye that yeah. he would be able to immediately fund those dollars towards an investment that he doesn't have to do anything with. That is in one of our most favorite flexible retirement accounts. It's the easy button. And again, yeah. you and I, we're real estate investors. We own a small rental portfolios here where we live, and so we're certainly not against owning real estate. We just want you to do it with eyes wide open. There's a whole lot of people yeah. in the real estate influencer community who would be like, "Do it, do it at all costs. Real estate's better than anything else in this world. You're an idiot if you don't like if you're not a real estate investor." But we don't necessarily <laughs> side with a lot of those right. people. We think sometimes their their math is undersold, and how things actually play out in reality, it's not as pretty as they make it seem. Okay, but let's talk about property managers if you do to go decide to go down this route typically they charge something like half of the first month's rent for a tenant that they find and then 10 percent of the monthly rent every month thereafter and so we would say interview a few don't just go with the cheapest matt i just you might get what you pay for <laughs> I, I hired a rental uh, property manager i don't know if i've talked about this much on the show for half of my rental properties i kind of wanted to give it a go i'm still self-managing half but then i'm, I'm i've 
I've hired someone and he's actually a friend who I trust a whole lot because he runs his rental property similarly to the way I do, but he also manages other people's rentals on the side. And it's been great. I trust him. I trust the way he manages repairs. I trust the way he screens tenants. We talked about all that stuff on the front end, but it's important to know, don't just go with this cheapest person. Hey, guess what? I'll only charge you 6% a month of the rent. Well, that might not actually be the best play for you because in the long run, it might not be best for your house and finding good people to live in that house. Exactly. And so Joshua, he also was asking about how you can calculate the rent amount. Well, that's something, of course, that the property manager can help you with. (laughs) Uh, But you always want to double check their work. This isn't something that you want to completely rely on them. There's still going to be some involvement where you're going to want to double check their work, I guess, like I said. It's similar to hiring a financial advisor. It's like you you should have a lot of pointed questions you want to ask that person. It's not just handing over the keys to the car. Yeah, because if you do, then there could be worse outcomes. Let's yeah. just say that. For instance, asking $200 less than the market rate in rent. Well, that impacts your returns in a pretty big way. Just because you hire them doesn't mean that you just outsource every single thing about that property. Uh, And so the best thing to do is just to look on Zillow, look around, see what other similar houses are renting for in your neck of the woods, given the improvements that you've made, the curb appeal that it has, the different amenities. Keep all of that in mind, and that can help you to hone in on a specific number. Yeah, Matt, I mean, I was shocked uh, looking in our neighborhood Facebook group recently sometimes people list their rentals, right, that they're putting on the market. It's like a 2 2 1,400 square feet for three grand. And I was like, oh man, the market, wow. if this is actually what this person is going to be able to command, the market's gone up more than I thought. And it takes it takes a while to kind of get familiar. It takes kind of looking regularly. When it comes to if you're an investor and you're looking to buy a home, knowing, having your pulse on the market means looking at Redfin, Zillow, uh, talking to realtors. I mean, it's a lot of that kind of work mm-hmm. for every week for years, uh, or at least for months on end, to feel like you are well acquainted with a good, when, when a good deal comes along. And the same is true as a landlord when you're trying to figure out how to price that home. If you want to be great at it, you kind of have to obsess over it just a little bit. But I also want to mention to to be picky about the tenants that you let into that house. We did a whole episode on effective tenant screening back in episode 44. So that was a really long time ago. But uh, the truth is, that, and we, I can't say this enough, this is the most underrated part of owning an investment property, right? A good tenant goes a long, long way. And uh, Matt, I think you would agree with me. We'd both rather miss a month of rent and wait to find someone great with who's got like solid credit, a good job, and a good landlord reference. Like We'd rather say, you know what? I'm going to lose a month's worth of rent in order to ensure that the person I'm getting in there is top-notch as opposed to someone that you're just mm-hmm. not sure about. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And so when you're interviewing property managers, ask about what that criteria they use to find a tenant and ask how they think about repairs and maintenance for the property. And if, if you're wondering where to start interviewing, where to turn to find a property manager, ask a real estate agent or two who does a lot of work in that neighborhood or ask another real estate investor that you know. And then you know ask for references from those property managers so you can call some of their current clients. That's going to give you a lot of insight about whether or not they're right for you and for your property. So um, it's even as a long distance landlord, it can be a, a bit of a lift. But if your home is ripe, if it's a great candidate for a rental property and you've got that locked in 3% 3% rate or something for 30 years. And this is a way for you to kind of get into the rental property game with, and, and the numbers make sense. And if you're able to find the right property manager, this could be, Joshua, I think a great a great path for you to go down. But again, you got to kind of go through that funnel and ensure that it is before you go all the way in. Yeah. If it was me, I would say, Joshua, I even if it was kind of a basically a wash, I think I would hire a manager and hang on to that property 
Well, and I guess the other thing too, like you mentioned that you only purchased this home a couple of years ago, assuming you are, you would have lived in it for at least two years. That's the part that has the big impact on your capital gains. You want to make sure that you are in there for a full two years before it is that you move. That way you are able to sell that house without having to pay uh, any capital gains on it. But keep that in mind, because once you start renting it, you want to make sure that before maybe you sign that third year lease, reevaluate and come back to the decision and say, okay, maybe this was working for the past two years. Will it continue to work for us moving forward? Because there's kind of a make or break point uh, within that third year. Yeah, the ticking uh, tax bomb that's coming yeah. if you don't opt to pivot in enough time. Exactly. So just keep that in mind that you always have the ability to then at that point, choose to go ahead and list it, put it on the market. Uh, and especially, I think that's wise to do if you've got, again, other plans for that money. And again, we, we just don't know some of the other goals that you might have as, as with your money as far as like retirement investing or whether you didn't even mention too, I guess, whether or not you have any debt. If you have a large amount of debt, and if you have not contributed uh, to your retirement accounts, I might be leaning more towards pay off the sure thing when it comes to the, the debt that you owe, uh, and then kind of hit the easy button when it comes to your different retirement yeah. accounts. Because real estate it, investing really is kind of more of an advanced money move. And so if you have yeah. lingering credit card debt or a HELOC that you haven't paid off, whatever, if it's stuff like that, yes. then, yep. then then it's probably, it doesn't make much sense until you've kind of covered some of your bases, some of the low-hanging fruit in personal finance exactly. before you get into like real estate investor territory. Yeah, there's, there's that order of operations that yeah. you want to follow. But speaking of investing matter, next listener, ha a question is specifically about investing as a solopreneur. Hey y'all, Skylar here from Tacoma, Washington. Started listening to the pod several months ago. Really appreciate all the help and advice. Since the pandemic, I've hopped jobs a few times, mostly as a contract worker. I love the work I'm doing now, but I haven't had access to a 401k or a 403b now for several years. To compensate, I started maxing out an old Roth IRA and opened a Betterment account so that between the two, I am putting aside 15% of my gross income. However, I also have a business as a therapist on the side, and I'm wondering if I qualify for a solo 401k, and if there would be any tax benefit or any other benefit I'm not thinking of to doing that instead of the arrangement that I've come up with to put aside that 15% of my income, or hopefully eventually more. Thanks so much. Skyler, thank you so much for your question. By the way, Austin, he actually had a very similar question. So we're kind of two birds, one stone That's here. Right. Uh, but no workplace retirement accounts. That is a bummer. Then again, that's what I've basically been dealing with my entire working life. And like you said, the tax benefits that you can qualify for by owning your own business can be superior to being just a straight W-2 employee, not necessarily from a retirement account standpoint. Although but, kind of, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain amount there. Maybe not the match, but there are other perks. Sure. But I'm just talking about all the different expenses that qualify as business deductions. We talk about that in episode 487 with Shannon. She's a CPA. She knows all the ins and outs of making sure that you're able to take full advantage of all of the legal routes that you can take that the IRS allows. Yeah. And so with that in mind, it might be worth that trade-off of not having a simple 401k with a basic like 3% match, right? Especially if you are happy having more autonomy, more freedom to do your own thing. That's something that... Anytime I've thought about applying for a job with a more of a, a traditional job, basically, with an employer, I just think about what it's going to require of me and the sacrifices that I'm going to have to make from a lifestyle standpoint, from yeah. a, being able to dictate what my days look like, essentially. And, and you quickly become 
unemployable yes. by, all, yeah, <laughs> by you, all the different employers. If out you there. work for yourself long enough, you really do. You're, you're like, I, I would not. I, and I loved, I loved working a traditional job. I loved working on a team. Mm-hmm. And, and there are things that There's I miss about advantages. It. Yeah, but they're it's not w- worth it. Though. No, it's not. <laughs> and the, the not just the creative control, right? That you yeah. get to have when you're kind of embarking on your own endeavor. But then the even if you work more hours, which some a lot of people, a lot of solopreneurs end up doing. At least you're working for your own thing. You're, it's your own baby. There's something really special, really wonderful about that for most folks. And let's specifically talk about the retirement account, one of the best retirement accounts out there that's specifically available to people who start their own business. And you know, you mentioned the possibility of a solo 401k. This is a killer retirement account that we don't talk about enough. And uh, it's actually the one we use here at How to Money. And this account is for solopreneurs who don't have any employees. Like Matt, you and I, we have a couple contractors who work for us on a extremely part-time basis, but no traditional employees. So we're able to qualify to contribute to a solo 401k. And so the the cool thing about, I think, the solo is the high contribution abilities and the fact that you can sock money in oh, yeah. not only as an individual, but also as the business. And so as just a traditional employee, you are capped at what an individual can contribute to a retirement account. But in this case, in the solo 401k case, you get to wear two hats, right? And this allows you to funnel more dollars into that sweet tax advantaged account than you'd be able to otherwise. You get to wear the the, the business owner hat, you get to wear the the individual tax filing hat. And so you, you can funnel potentially a ridiculous amount of money into retirement accounts because you are both and. That's right. And I think there's a, a part, like it's certainly the higher limits, but it's the fact, Joel, that you and I, we are committed to maxing that out, yeah. essentially, right? It's not that, oh, maybe we're thinking about adding, like it's, it's basically our default assumption is that we are going to max out these retirement accounts as much as possible. And so what we are experiencing isn't necessarily what somebody out there would experience because if, if they haven't basically pre-decided or pre-ordained and this is i mean i don't even know if we actually had that conversation but we're just like well of course we're gonna uh, contribute as much as humanly possible yeah the max <laughs> amount the accounts. business is allowed to contribute we do and we i mean we both do that on the personal level too on the so, personal side as well so yeah. certainly from the employer side but then also on the personal and employee level but what that means is that we are certainly experiencing the most benefit possible from yeah. our, our solo, well, and let's talk about that okay. so you want to talk about how businesses the business is able to contribute and kind of the how the formula works yeah so as an individual or as an employee you can contribute up to twenty two thousand five hundred dollars this year next year that's going to be twenty three thousand dollars it got bumped up it's it's the same as with a 401k through an employer but then on top of that you can stick up to 25 percent of your compensation of your wages into that solo 401k as well this is sort of like the employer match but since you are technically the employer you're still making that contribution yourself it's coming it's going to feel like it's coming out of your pocket yeah <laughs> it's not like quote-unquote free money right but the total combined amount that you can load up into that account it just can't exceed sixty six thousand dollars for this year so when you think about that that's insane right that's so much money oh, that you could potentially insane amount of money funnel into a retirement account and granted most people, solopreneurs, they're they're not balling to that extent. They they're not able to maximize that much, which is understandable. But to know that you can, if you're successful enough, like that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, you've got that higher contribution limit compared to what a traditional W two worker what they have available to them. That's really the biggest benefit of the solo. There's no additional tax benefits. Uh, except for the fact, too, that you can choose, I guess, whether or not you want it to be within a Roth solo or a traditional solo. So you get to kind of choose your adventure as to how that money is going to be taxed. And I don't want to 
underestimate the power of that because a lot of folks don't have control over that. It's like, oh, well, I wish I had a, a Roth 401k, but my employer doesn't offer it. As an entrepreneur, if you have a solo 401k, you have the option to decide how that money is taxed. Yeah, yeah, Matt. Well, we're talking about tax benefits too. It's, it's. We should probably mention one other account. So the solo 401k. Yeah, granted, that's uh, there's a massive amount of money you can sock away in there, but there might even be a more important. Uh, retirement account available to solopreneurs, which is the HSA. Oh, yeah. The and health the, savings account, that's one of right. our favorites. And we talk about that pretty regularly on the show. We can link to an article that we have on the site about HSAs um, and how great they are. But if you have a qualifying high deductible health care plan, then you can open up the what we consider like the absolute best retirement account from a tax standpoint, because you're able to get this triple tax advantage, Skylar, and, and potentially even a quadruple tax advantage by avoiding FICA and payroll tax. Um, with some of those contributions that you're able to make. And so they, the money that you stick into the HSA, it avoids tax when you stick it in, it grows tax-free, and then you also are able to avoid tax when you take the money out of that HSA if there, if that money is spent on qualifying healthcare expenses. So be sure to look into the HSA as well. As a single individual, you're talking about just over 4000 bucks you can sock away in a given year. If you're married, filing jointly, you can sock away potentially up to 8300 or 8350 something like that, Matt. And so it's it's an important account for solopreneurs to think about as well. That's right. I think the, the one caveat there is that you might have to be registered as an actual S corporation, but those uh, it needs to be paid via the corporation or at least reimbursed by the company uh, in order to avoid paying that FICA tax there. But uh, you also mentioned that taxable brokerage account that you've got with Betterment. That is great, but they don't support solo 401k accounts. So where should you open one? Fidelity. That's actually <laughs> where we have ours. Vanguard, Schwab, they are also great. Uh, and we're actually, uh, we're planning to have the dude who wrote the book about the solo 401k on next week, Sean Mullaney. Uh, so if you want more details about how excellent this account can be for solopreneurs, be sure to check that episode out when it drops. Yeah, he's going to talk about year-end tax planning in general, mm -hmm. but specifically, he's going to have a lot of advice on the solo 401k, why it's so great, how to maximize its benefits. But we've got a couple more questions to get to on this episode, Matt, including, yeah, is it worth switching banks for just a measly extra 1%? We'll get to that question and more right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, 
If you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. We are back. It's now time for the Facebook question of the week. This one is from Jessica, and she posted in the How to Money Facebook group, which you should join if you are not a member yet. But she asked, how much do you all save for a future new-to-you car purchase? I know the guys really encourage people to buy cars in cash, so I figure you are supposed to basically always be saving a little bit for that eventual car purchase. Right now, I have a $500 a month car payment. Once that is paid off, I want to have a plan for how much of that to save for another car someday? And how often do people typically have to replace their cars? Matt, she said, she said, always, always be saving. Isn't it? What's that? What's that movie? Always be closing. Always be closing. <laughs> Alec Baldwin. What is What is that one? I don't know. I just okay. know the, I know the line. Okay. But <laughs> if you're into sales, you should always be closing. But I, I mean, I just love that Jessica, she is thinking ahead and so much of personal finance, like that is what it's about. It's just about having a plan. It's about thinking ahead and planning for the future. Yeah. And I think a lot of people roll their eyes when they hear us say that you should buy your car in cash. But that is something that, that we think is one of the fundamental, fundamental cornerstones of personal finance. Yes. And <laughs> and if you want to stop the leaks, well, this is this is a big gushing leak in most people's budgets and what's going out every single month. And this is one of the easiest ones to tame. But so many people, they just assume that it's not possible. And so they, they don't really work hard at pushing themselves in that direction. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've always been willing to drive vastly inferior cars. Not like three years, gently used, old kind of thing. Uh, I I'm willing to drive things that are 10 plus years old, 15 years old, and I know you're willing to do the same. And that is what saves so much money, allowing you to put that to more effective uses, to stuff you actually care about more for most people, right? And I loved reading the replies on this one because, and that's what's so great about the How to Money Facebook group is it's listeners helping each other. But it it just kind of goes to show that there are different strokes for different folks. Like Teresa mentioned that she buys a new car roughly every 10 years, which I think is a totally fine approach as well. She pays her car payment in something like four years, and then she saves roughly that same amount for the next six years in order to have tons of cash to bring to the table for the next new car. And I think that is a, strategy. a more than valid strategy. And and some people might say, oh, Matt and Joel would, would uh, crush Teresa for buying a new car. No, 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 not at all. If you're going to own that car for 10 years and you're going to pay it off in less than four uh, and you're going to save up to buy the next one in cash, you totally can afford to buy a new car 
if that's something you prioritize. Yeah, so Matthew, he also posted in the group, and he just crossed 100,000 miles on his Mazda. And, you know, once you hit that threshold, that's where a lot of folks throw in the towel, often because the maintenance costs start adding up. Yeah, that's just when the car's getting broken in, though, right? Yeah, so he's going to have to spend $2,000 on tires, on brakes, etc. He said that it feels like a loss, even though he knows it's a win. And he is 100% spot on. It's ba- it's the equivalent of three new car payments, making all of those repairs and that maintenance. And then that Mazda is gonna is easily gonna last them for like another hundred thousand miles with the proper maintenance. Then you'll save buckets of money mm-hmm. in the process. And so it's a psychologically difficult thing to stomach, even though when you sit down and crunch the numbers, you know that this is true. <laughs> and that's why it's so helpful to actually sit down and run the numbers like yeah. that, as opposed to just feeling it when you're there in the shop. And they inevitably tell you it's going to be 50% more than you thought it was going to be when you drop the thing off. Yeah, like you said, Matthew's correct on this 100% because it feels one way, but rationally it's something else, right? And that's the truth when it comes to money. We have to use, like, it's not that our emotions are unwarranted, but it's also important to say, like, the emotions don't run the show. And the truth is, if I go out there, if I sell this car that really has a ton of life left in it, I'm signing up for a lot more money over the long haul. I know it feel it's tough to, to face that bill in the moment, but it's still the right move to keep that car on the road mm-hmm. and not because uh, at this point, it's not that the car isn't going to depreciate more, but it's going to depreciate a heck of a lot more slowly at this point for Matthew. He's taking less of a hit every single year. And so like, we don't want to squash your hopes and dreams of driving something nice. Uh, if you've budgeted for that, if for that's that what you want to do, Jessica. Yeah, if you want to <laughs> drive something nice, that's okay. Uh, and, and, and as long as you're not taking out a loan with a really high interest rate and upgrading your car on the reg, you're, it's going to be fine. Uh, but just make that decision with your eyes wide open, right? Knowing the trade-offs that you're going to be making. And we think that uh, transportation is just its such a, an easy line on your budget to score big on, but most folks refuse to touch it. I think eating out might be the number one math that people could easily claw a bunch of money mm-hmm. back into their life on, and, and transportation might be number two. Or maybe they're flip-flopped in your life. It just depends on the individual. But the longer you can delay the upgrade, but keep stocking away dollars for the day that you eventually have to make it happen, the more financially free you become. I think if you do have a car payment right now, the minute you ditch it, keep sticking that same payment into a savings account for that next car, for the maintenance on this car, and for the next car you need to buy. Totally. That is, that's the right way to go. Yeah. All right. So this is something we've talked about on the show before as a rule of thumb. But Jessica, so one of her questions though was how much should I basically be spending on a used car? And I'm curious to see if, if this all stands up or I guess if you agree with it. Uh, but w- at some point we talked about how you take your annual income, you combine that with however much money you have invested or retirement or your, your total investments, basically everything. Mm-hmm. You take that, 10% of that is what you should feel free to spend on a new car, at least a new to you car. And so what that means, let's give a little example, a couple examples, I guess, to add some color. So imagine someone makes $200,000, right? That's a pretty large salary. But let's also envision, imagine that they only have, say, $50,000 set aside for retirement. So their total all in, you're looking at two hundred fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. So 10% of that, $25,000. And someone who's like making $200,000 are thinking, well, I'm a, what are you talking about? I'm only going to drop twenty five grand on a, on a new car. But the fact is, you don't have any money. The Rivian's calling my name, boys. <laughs> you don't have any, you don't have enough money set aside in retirement to be able to offset the cost of something that big like a Rivian. But what this also means is that somebody with a lower income, let's say somebody's making a solid 100K every single year, but let's say they're in their 50s or 60s or something, right? And they have diligently socked money away. Let's say they've got $500,000 in their retirement accounts. So you combine those two and you're looking at a total of $600,000. 
I think that person, that individual, should feel the freedom to spend $60,000, which is closer to the cost of yeah. a Rivian, if they wanted to. Granted, so it's like they, they would be better off if they didn't, and we would encourage you to not spend that money <laughs> if that's not something that truly moves the needle for you. But if you are into cars, if you're a car person, uh, I think that's a good rule of thumb, personally, to guide you to, okay, is, does it make sense for me to buy this newer, newer vehicle? Because it takes into account not only what you're currently making, which is what you feel psychologically, you think you're rich if you're making 250k a year, but it also depends on how much money you have set aside for the future. Okay, I you, think you're you, right. You dig it? No, I do dig it. Okay. I do dig it. I think that might be demoralizing for someone just out of college who just got their sure. first job making yeah. forty five grand. But I, I still think I took that exact same recipe at least, if not yes. stronger, when I was young. Exactly. And I think that it makes a big impact on your ability to grow wealth over time. So, it, 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 like I, my my first car, eighteen hundred bucks. My a car, my Nissan Altima that I drove for a lot of years was like twenty eight hundred bucks. And so the even and and just to say how how much I drink my own medicine, I take my own medicine. It like my the last car I bought bought we got a second car, an SUV, because guess what? We needed Emily now Need doing an internship. We needed extra wheels. Finally, not a one-car family anymore, sadly. But we got an 05 SUV, Acura SUV, for four grand. And we so got an Acura NSX? <laughs> I'm kidding. That's the like, sports uh, car. No, it's <laughs> MDX, right? But we spent 4000 bucks on this thing, and it's not like gorgeous. Could um, you have afforded something that was much more expensive absolutely 100 percent. from a financial point, standpoint you would have been in the clear yes but for i could you, have even used our little algorithm and i could have signed off on spending a heck of a lot yeah, more on a car you something nice yeah if you wanted to but fact is you're like no no this is point a to point b kind of transportation and again i know we're hardcore and there's a lot of people listening and they say all right i'm gonna take what matt and joel say on this one with at least a grain of salt you do you that's but fine at least totally we're gonna tell you our thoughts on we it want to challenge and you you do with it what you will <laughs> absolutely <laughs> all right let's get to our next uh, this was an anonymous poster actually in Facebook and they said do people think it's worth switching banks for 1% extra I already have a high interest savings account but I saw another bank offering a whole extra percent Oh, Joel what are your thoughts would you do it okay so I thought the perfect answer, and again, this is the community helping one another. The best answers were from Rob and Karen. And they basically said, you don't necessarily need to switch banks altogether, but you just open up an account with this other bank and you move most of your savings over. Nice. Because you can move that money back and forth. You don't necessarily need to like cancel your account, move to another bank, switch every single thing over and uh, start afresh, right? I just agree with that assessment. Like That's exactly what I do. Because I've been banking with Capital One and Discover for a heck of a long time. But then the CIT rate jumps above 5%, Matt, and I'm like super interested in getting that on the bulk of my savings. So I moved a bunch of my savings over to CIT. But guess what? I still do the bulk, the majority of my banking with Capital One and Discover. So like your bill pay and whatnot. That's yeah. Your, yeah. Yeah. So I like... I. I mostly benefit from the higher rates, you know, by stashing some of that money with CIT, but I also didn't have to like change my whole life and change all mm-hmm. my banking operations just to snag that higher rate. So I think that's the best way to go about it. I like it. it and uh, Discover's like paying a pretty hefty rate too. So, so is Capital One. So it's not like they're slouches, but I just wanted yeah. that extra little bit. No, I like it. I think chasing yield on savings can take up too much of your time. I think it's nice to snag that extra 1%, but so much depends on how much money you have in savings, how much time this is going to eat out of your life. Um, it, it comes down to what game it is that you want to play when it comes to your personal finances as well, because uh, switching banks, it's not it's literally something I've, I think I've only ever done once, like maybe 10 years ago, I was with, I think this bank was called Westfield or something like that. And they, at the time, they're offering like the highest, highest rate out there. But over time, I'm like, man, they don't really have an app. Their inter- online interface sucks. And so I ended up just hopping over to Ally, who has always not been at the very top 
they haven't been leading the pack, but they've always been really, really competitive. They're still top tier. And their app is awesome, and I've never had any issues with them. Their customer service is great. But for me, the game I like to play is when it comes to credit cards. I love doing that. I, I hate opening up new accounts, but for whatever reason, I like to take advantage of different uh, welcome offers, the cash back, the companion pass. We talked about that recently. We've got a piece Recent up. Recent newsletter, yeah. Yeah, we've got a piece up on the uh, article up on the site on how it is that you can earn the companion pass with Southwest the most effectively without wasting a, a whole lot of time. And so some of it comes down to personal preference as well, because for whatever reason, that's just how I'm wired. Yeah. I mean, you and I, we've talked about the limits of intense frugality, right? And frugality can get you a lot of places. It can be a massive aid in your ability to save and invest and and build wealth for your future. But it can also at some point be a hindrance. And if you're so fixated on getting the little, eking the little extra amount from your savings that you're less interested in maybe increasing your income or some of those bigger levers that you can pull on the personal finance spectrum that that are going to help you on your journey. They're going to accelerate your ability to hit your goals. Then uh, this could be short-sighted, right? To be so intently focused on switching banks to eke out an extra 1%. And let's say you've only got like, Four thousand bucks in savings or something like that. We're, what's what's the point? We're, we're talking about such a small amount of money. Negligible amounts of dollars. At that point. Yeah. Exactly. So um, it, it's also different. Depends on how much money you have in savings. How much of and and again, you might say, I'm getting five percent on savings. Maybe I should stop investing in the market, or I should just be less less focused, less interested in uh, sh- uh, shoveling money into those tax advantaged accounts. So it can almost be this double edged sword where you're so focused on your savings, yeah. you're less focused on your investing, and so you have to kind of take all of those things into account. Yeah, if keep it's, it in the right perspective, the yeah. right context, because that's the other thing too. I like what you because the dollar amount does matter, and folks will hear us talk about one percent when it comes to our investments, and they'll say, "Dudes, I've heard y'all freak out about a 0.75 expense ratio, and one percent in savings is a big diff- is is a lot different than one percent when it comes to your investments, mm-hmm. because typically with your savings you're capped at a certain amount. Even if you have fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars in there, you are looking at a limited amount of money when you're talking about a one percent difference. However, you compare that to 1% within your investments, sure, early on, it doesn't make that big of a deal. But over time, the compounding effect of that 1% as you are continuing to save beyond fifty dollars or $100,000 has a massive impact on the amount of money that yeah. you have in your accounts by the time you actually do retire. And we've all got limited bandwidth, like limited yep. focus abilities. And so if you're doing good enough is often the best recipe for most people. Simplicity, keeping it simple. If it's a bank you love that pays you 4% and you're like, should I go over here for 5 well, if it's simple and you want to toss some of your savings in, go for it. But if it's going to take up too much of your time, too much of your brain space, it might not be worth it. Yeah. So I wouldn't do it for 1%. I'd do it for an extra 2%. For okay. Sure. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's that, that's Matt's threshold. That's my threshold, at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, th- thanks for your questions. As always, we love to hear from you. And if you've got uh, a money question, send it our way. We'll take it hopefully on the next Ask How to Money episode. But Matt, let's get back to the beer we had on this one. This one was uh, Green City by Other Half, a double dry hopped, hazy India Pale Ale. What were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, man, this one was really tasty. I will say, did not have as much hot presence as you would come to expect uh, from some of the different other half beers. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it doesn't have that sharpness. Instead, I feel like it has more of a lemony, like citrus, like almost like a citrusiness, uh, like a brightness to it that you don't typically expect with other half beers. It's it's actually a double dry hopped, which... It's still very delicious, but uh, yeah, not quite as hot, uh, many hops as the last one. I was, was going to say, a little more laid back than most other half mm-hmm. beers. But st- that being said, 
this would be uh, top notch for any other oh, brewer yeah. <laughs> in the like you're just you like when you have other half beers you come to expect something so like pungent. concentrated and it, I was going to say pungent yeah. yes exactly concentrated and pungent that and and this one is just a notch below that it's still delicious but on the other hand I think this is more drinkable and this is something that I would like yeah. if if there was a, a four pack of of this in my fridge every single week like I wouldn't be mad about it um, and it, it almost it, drinks more like a like a hot, very hoppy pale yeah as opposed to double IPA right? true yeah this is this is um, which, this which drinks more like a nectar and less like a syrup yeah going back to agave. <laughs> yeah going back to the beginning <laughs> yeah and I think sometimes that's what I want I like I don't uh-huh. I, I love like the heavyweight title contender uh, IPAs that they make but then I also like something that's just a bit more reserved sometimes you want to is it a welterweight? Welterweight? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Featherweight? I don't exactly, know. Yeah. I don't watch You don't boxing. always <laughs> want a Mike Tyson punch <laughs> to the mouth. You, know? you don't want a heavyweight champion of the world. But either way, still a very delicious beer. Glad you and I got to enjoy one of these today. And a huge thanks yet again to Jason for donating this one to the podcast. But, uh, buddy, that's going to be it for this episode. Listeners can find our show notes up on the website at howtomoney.com. We'll make sure to link to any of the different resources, including previous episodes, but also the budgeting article that we've got up there. You can look for that at howtomoney.com. Southwest Companion Pass that you just mentioned, too. Yeah, that's right. Which is, like, if you're wondering how to game the system to get the most months on the Southwest Companion Pass, we kind of spilled it. We talked with Lynn Mettler about that a while back, but then we kind of put it in for free uh, in <laughs> in detail on our website too, so that people can hopefully learn from it, figure it out. And then, man, that can be a massive flight benefit for sure. Oh, so. yeah. All right, bud. That's it. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.